I think the first two years of the business were the hardest. And convincing people that just because I worked from my garage and I didn't have a big sandstone building in the city that I was wasting all of their possible consulting money on, you know, just the perception that may, maybe you weren't as professional. Like, it was funny. When we started, I can remember saying, oh, I'm Natalie Chapman from Gem Maker. And they were, Gem what? Are you like a jewellery shop or do you do like gemstone stuff? So now, if I say, hi, I'm Natalie from Gem Maker, it's like, oh, I follow you on social and we really want to work for you. So once we'd won the award and we put that out everywhere, there were a number of quotations that we had out with different organisations. And we found after we put that out, they all came back signed. So that was great. It really did take us up a notch in terms of external validation of us as a business. Welcome to Multiple Hats, a show about STEM professionals who have gone off script and carved their own path beyond the tracks that were set for them. Science, technology, engineering, mathematics, medicine, how they found their why and what it takes to make it happen. Have you ever thought of a brilliant idea as a rough gemstone? That's what Natalie Chapman, the founder of Gem Maker, thinks researchers and inventors have. A rough gem that needs a great deal of polishing before becoming an actual gemstone. With a Bachelor in Chemistry, an MBA, a decade of marketing, communication and tech transfer experience, she decided that there was a better way to accelerate this process of taking an early idea and actually turn it into something that can be used by people and make a difference in the real world. And so she founded GemMaker a successful commercialization agency helping researchers and innovative businesses take their idea to the market and into the hands of the people they can actually help. Gemmaker has been in the business for over 12 years now and employs around 20 people with many different expertise across the science sector. And it's been hugely successful. The team won multiple awards, including the Telstra Business Award for Microbusiness, and for those of you not familiar with this one, the Telstra Award is actually a very robust process and it's very difficult to get. So when they won this award, it was definitely a fantastic boost in credibility and associated business coming in. Here the genesis of Gem Maker from Natalie Chapman joining from. From my garage in Waranora, which is also the headquarters for the Gem Maker commercialization agency. You've started in STEM with a Bachelor and Honours in Chemistry. Why chemistry and what kind of chemistry? Well, I guess when I was at school, I had a stepfather who was a chemist and he used to bring home a chemistry kit like no other. It wasn't the chemistry sets that you see of traditional days where, you know, there's little kitchen type of things in it. It was a real one. It had meso burners and all sorts of things in it. And frankly, I had a lot of fun. I used to spend a lot of time at science centres and doing experiments at home. And I really enjoyed it. So I loved chemistry, wanted to do more of it and loved science. And hence, I went into a science degree and ended up in chemistry. So that was a clear choice for you when you had to choose uni degree? 
Yeah. So it wasn't that I'd decided from a young age, I was going to be a chemist. I was going to be this, that or the other, because I had lots of different jobs that I thought I might be as I was going through year 11 and 12. But, you know, at the end of the high school, I decided on the science and got in there, did chemistry, physics, maths and computing science, and then just kept doing more chemistry and really enjoyed it. Yeah. And then you went into marketing. Is that true? It is. And it's quite funny, actually, because I specifically did not go into a business degree because well, business was a bit dodgy, really. And I I thought, you know, science, love it. It's very pure. Business people, not so sure about. And so, yes, the fact that I then went and did a master's in marketing is quite a complete flip. And so I I guess the way that I got into that was I finished my chemistry degree. I was working down at the University of Wollongong and jobs in chemistry down in Wollongong were few and far between. And so a position came up in the marketing department and it was to go out to schools and talk to year 11 and 12 students about what it was like to go to uni and tell them about uni and, and give them tours and that sort of thing. And that was my first introduction to marketing. And I could see the value in it because I really believe in education, really believed in what the Uni of Wollongong was doing in the way of their courses and the way that they taught. And I also got to work with the science, engineering and IT people at the Uni of Wollongong, attracting more students into STEM degrees. And for me, that was really important. And I actually got into the marketing masters because I needed to communicate with my boss who was a marketing manager and you can't just you know when you're reporting on things keep using the same science formats you know like a lab report so you had to actually write a business report for the activities I was doing and so I, I thought it would be better to do a, a degree in that area and understand how to communicate with business. And that was my first foray into it. And I've never looked back. Yeah. So transition to marketing. So if I look at your career track, I see a wealth of experience in many parallel occupations. So starting with a marketing job at Anstor, the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organization for about nine years, general manager of commercialization at Cruiser CRC, commercializing a visionary teleconference platform at that time. And then Knowledge Commercialization Advisor with Knowledge Commercialization Australasia for about three years. All of that while being the chair at the University of New South Wales School of Chemistry Committee and while being the co-manager for Arcan Resource for the last 11 years. And somewhere in between there, 12 years ago, you founded GemMaker. So we'll explore the genesis of GemMaker in depth. But before we do, can you talk me through these intertwined multiple pieces? Sure. Yes. Okay. So I guess many, many hats is what I wear and they are actually all interlinked in some way and there is a purpose for them as well. So first of all, I am the managing director of GemMaker. It's a commercialization agency, which means I help researchers and innovative businesses take their ideas, get them out of the lab and out into use. And so that's the primary thing that I do. And I work with lots of different organisations in different sectors. So it might be space, might be manufacturing, could be food, agriculture, IT, and getting those new ideas out to market. So that's number one. 
Number two is that I belong to the peak group for tech transfer in the country, which is called Knowledge Commercialization Australasia. And I've been very involved with that peak body for all of the years that I've been in Gemmaker as well as Ansto and, you know, helping that profession professionalize itself and be out there doing things. The working with University of New South Wales in chemistry is all about making sure that the research organisation, School of Chemistry, are interacting more with business side and to help their researchers, but also the students have that more commercial aspect. I'm also on the advisory board to the University of Wollongong in business. And for that, I'm helping them with the entrepreneurship programs that they run to make sure that they're more practically aligned with, you know, if you're going to do one of these things, how it will help you when you graduate, but also getting them working with the science and engineering faculties so that there's a bit of cross-pollination between business and science. And I guess for Alcane Resources, I've been the corporate communications manager for them for about almost 11 years. And they're an ASX-listed mining company. And so I'm helping them with communicating when they go for fundraising, when they communicate to their shareholders, and helping them get their projects through the environmental impact assessment that needs to be done for new projects. So yes, lots of different things. Many, many different things. And then you talked about knowledge commercialization, Australasia. And you said it's a peak body that helps with commercialization in the country. Can you tell me a little bit more of their role and how they impact the sector in commercialization? Sure. So most people in the country know that we have research organizations, universities, research agencies, et cetera, that are funded to do you know, pretty early stage research and also invent. And Once they've come up with that idea and they're starting to develop it, there's actually a group within most of the research organisations called the Tech Transfer Professionals or the Tech Transfer Office. And these people are translators, effectively, where they've usually got a STEM background or some sort of technical background, as well as a commercial background. And their role is to work with the researchers find out what they've got and start trying to find industry links and and help protect that invention. And so they're in the organisation and they're liaising out as well. And I guess they're really, really important in the process, but not a lot of people know that they exist because it is a small number of them in comparison to the number of researchers in the country. And so Knowledge Commercialisation Australasia is that peak body that tech transfer professionals belong to. And they lobby government in terms of what you need to do to commercialise. They also do professional development for their members and training so that they can be skilled up in the areas that they're missing. So they're a very important group that we help also get the profile out amongst government, media, industry, et cetera, to know that these people exist and that there should be more of them going more, should be getting trained to be in that industry, and they need to be recognised and a lot more. Mm. So if I think about, you know, people trying to do tech transfer, I often think about an accelerator or an incubator. How does it differ from the role of knowledge commercialization Australasia? Sure. So 
there's incubators and accelerators, but the role of a tech transfer officer is to be in a university or a research organisation, helping to protect the IP, helping to move it along. Incubators and accelerators tend to have people come into them for a period of time. It might be a program that, that goes for a number of days or weeks. They might incubate businesses as opposed to research. So usually you'll find research done at universities. The tech transfer professionals are working with the research when it's much earlier stage than if it was in an incubator or accelerator. So they tend to be a little bit further down the track as a like a startup business or something. They're not startup businesses in universities. Universities with tech transfer, the researcher may go to the tech transfer or will go to the tech transfer office when they have an idea. And right. so the idea to do some research is very early stage. And then they start looking at, well, what might be the market for it? And the researcher starts doing some actual experiments and a bit more on that technical side, they're much earlier stage than an incubator accelerator type of thing. So it's even at the ideation stage that Knowledge Commercialization Australia can help. So really at the ideation, even thinking, okay, are you going to a direction that is going to lead into commercialization at any point? Or should you refine your idea from the start? So it's actually really good because often that comes a lot later. And we definitely encourage, you know, fundamental research without commercialization purpose to be done to expand the boundary of knowledge. That's definitely important. But it's good to have also that aspect so that the research can be more oriented with a purpose in mind and a problem to solve. So, yeah, very interesting. You also find that when you're talking about universities, you're talking about deep tech. So you will also find that there are incubators and accelerators that are out there that are early stage. People go in with an idea and they might do a one-day, two-day, three-week type of program and they are at the early stage of I have an idea and I'm going to prove it up and all of the rest of it, but it's not deep tech. So mm, that, that is one of the big differences big between difference. doing it at a research organisation and doing it at a separate incubator accelerator that is not deep tech related. Of course. Yeah, very different thing. Yeah. So you've talked about all those roles and how they interlink together, but still I'm wondering, how do you juggle all this while running your own business? <laughs> well... I have a things to do list, but not just that. I actually have a team of staff. So I have around about anywhere between 18 and 20 staff at any time. And when I say staff, I've got various contractors, casuals, full-time, et cetera, as a team. And it doesn't matter if you're a contractor or staff member, but it's not just me. And so the team all take projects on and project manage things. And so... Yes, I have a very full calendar and I do lots of things and I try and choose the things that I do to have impact and use my strengths, I guess. So if you go back to when I had children and they were in primary school, when I was helping the school, it was not making sandwiches at the canteen. It was writing large grant applications so that they could have extra facilities at the school. 
Right. So being very strategic about what you choose to use your time for. Absolutely. Mm, I like this because we always talk about non-promotable tasks and how often women get given more non-promotable tasks than their male counterparts and how it impacts their career development. And say being very mindful of choosing the tasks that you do so that they have an impact to the world, but also to your own career is definitely a fantastic advice. Now, so you founded GemMaker in 2011, just a few months after leaving Ansto, and at the same time of starting as a general manager at Smart Service CRC. What was the vision for GemMaker when you started it? And, and what really led you to start this? There was a couple of factors. One, I'd been in my role for 10 years. And when I say my role, not just one role at Ansto, I had worked on many projects and a few roles. So... You know, 10 years anywhere will encourage you to get up and move so that you can, you know, do other things and be excited and refreshed and all the rest of it. I'd done an innovation and entrepreneurship subject as part of my MBA and it was awesome. I had a great time with it, found out from a survey that I was entrepreneurial, which is basically just being entrepreneurial but inside an organisation. So I found that to be quite interesting and we had to keep a diary and say if we were going to do a startup business, what that startup business would be. So it was a great time to be reflecting on what I'd want to do and I was thinking about what I did do as a job and what the downside to that job was because I was really feeling like I was moving deck chairs on a Titanic, which was not satisfying at that point, which you know, there's lots going on. You need to be across a lot of areas. You don't have a lot of staffing and resources. You've got these great inventions coming through, but you really don't have the time or money to actually move any of them fast out anywhere. So you really feel like you're not doing anything. And so it was motivating me to think that there must be a better way to do it. And so hence GemMaker was born. The good thing was one of my previous bosses at Ansto was the CEO of Smart Services CRC and I went and had a coffee with him and I said, look, you know, I'm thinking of leaving and I think I could do things better and I just need my first contract to, you know, cement what I'm doing. And he said, I need someone part-time to be a commercialization manager. I don't want a full-time person, you know, but I want them to have the right experience. And I went, hey, I could start my company. You could be my first contract. And then I'd have three years of knowing that I had something that was going to keep, you know, start the business off and I wouldn't just be jumping to nothing. And so Jam Maker was born. Wow, great mitigation strategy. I love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it wasn't like going into the total unknown, but rather having your ID and already a client to test on. That's great. And so... I suppose he was very enthusiastic about this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, we signed the contract and yeah, it it all happened. So, and I grew it from there. So it was great. So what was the very first step after that conversation to stop GemMaker in the making of GemMaker? I guess I had to think about what I was going to call the company, what we were going to do, start planning it, you know, what the financials were going to look like. I had to do a lot of planning. I'd already been doing some mental planning. But actually, one of the most important things that I did was that I pulled together a list of all of the awesome people that I had worked with in the past 
who could possibly be part of the company. And I rang them all up and had a chat with them and asked them where they were up to in their life and actually had some of them come on and join me quite early. Conveniently enough, most of them were women wanting to work flexibly from home. They were at home with one or more children and they wanted to come back into the workforce, but they did not want to come in full time. They wanted to work flexibly from home and they wanted to be able to work around what they were doing. So it was an extremely good business model to start off with. Mm, so attracting talent this way. Was it not common 10 years ago to have women coming back part-time in the workforce in no. significant roles? Not in STEM, not at all, no. No, not in STEM. So STEM, it was like you're in full-time or you're not. And in fact, some of the staff that I had were made redundant from positions because they were actually part-time. Wow. Yeah, yep. that is such penalizing for mothers. I mean, for fathers too, but you know, as we know that primary care is often women until we manage to bridge that gap, it is definitely unproportionately affecting women. So great that you could propose that business model and get great talents with you. So the very first step was to actually kind of think about the staffing, if I understand well, and the expertise. So is that because you needed different expertise that to bring to your own? Yes. So in the company, we have expertise in intellectual property, market research, marketing communications, commercialization, deal making, and also different technical backgrounds as well. Because if we're doing market research in things, it's a lot easier to do market research in the medical sector if you have some medical understanding in the first place. So that's why we needed sort of breadth in that area. And the people that we were competing with are pretty much one-man bands where there are lots and lots of people out there commercialising or as commercialization consultants, but it's generally, you know, one people shows. And that means, you know, they can only work on one job at a time or maybe two jobs at a time. And they don't necessarily have the depth and breadth and networks and everything that I was able to provide. And mm. that's one of the, I guess, the really strengths of Gemmaker is that we do have that depth and breadth. Mm. And so a bit of a curiosity there. So your background is in chemistry, but you didn't want to start in chemistry only because often I see this type of agency, which you call a one-man show, they specialize in, you know, biotechs in the health and medical sectors or one kind of part of STEM, but you decided to do different part of STEM. Why is that? Well, what you'll actually find is chemistry is fundamental to everything. So if you're in the physical sciences, so I, I split it up into there's the biological health sciences and there are the physical sciences. And the physical sciences are chemistry and engineering related primarily and may, maybe some physics and that sort of thing. And so whether you're talking about carbon fibre or you're talking about rare earths and rare metals, you're talking about food, new fertilisers, environmental things, chemistry is kind of fundamental to all of it. So being in all of those sectors, having some sort of chemistry knowledge, I mean, at the moment, I guess we're doing green ammonia. Guess what? Chemistry. Mm. So, yeah, a lot of what we're taking on is chemically re related, but, I, you know, I'm not doing the chemistry. I just need to understand it. So, mm. and not, you know, understand it at great depth, but I have to be able to understand it to be able to communicate it to other business people. Simple. Mm. 
Okay, so your team is across those sectors. And so you said that you kind of made a little bit of planning, reach out to people for staffing. How many people did you start with? Two. Two, and then you said between 18 to 20. How fast did you have to scale up in terms of staff? Well, I guess we started with two and very quickly we had probably another three or four people available to come in and do work. And so people were being brought in as we took on projects or they said they had availability and then we were able to take on projects based on that and then continue growing the team. So, yeah, it, it grows with the different projects that we have and also how available the team are and how much they want to grow with it as well. So that's been really good for Gail. And did you ever have to, you know, you took a project and then had to figure out the staffing after or you always first figure out the staff and then took project based on that? We've done both. So, yeah, we've done things where we're like, oh, we're going to need an expert in this area. But, you know, you know, we did, I, did, I guess we did one recently. We needed an expert in plant science and we didn't have one at the time. But the organisation was interested in it. So we went and found one. So. Part of what we do is we find things and we do stuff that's never been done before. So it's not that hard, really. Mm. And so from that conversation with your boss saying, oh, I'm thinking about doing that and him saying, okay, come on board and you creating GemMaker and starting hiring people, how long did that take? You know, how long did you sit on this idea? About a month. A month. Fantastic. Quick action. Yeah. Well, I was, I was like, I had done lots of thought coming back from that, that subject. So it was probably, I don't know, maybe nine months or so that I was thinking about that from that MBA before I, you know, and I was trying to work it out and I'm going to do it. And then I just needed my first client. So it just worked out really nicely. And then I picked up the second client within another two months and signed a deal that was quite large for three years and so we really knew what we were doing it was fantastic right so first client from the making second client very quickly and then from there you had portfolio and and then from yep. there how did you grow your customer base people came to you or did you have to do any advertising so we use social media advertising we don't pay for ads we never have so whenever you're growing a new business and you're starting from scratch the hardest thing in the world is to convince people to take you on when you're a brand new startup company. And so getting customers is, you know, crucial to commercializing technology. And it was crucial for me starting up a business as well. And it's not, hey, I got my first two customers. So it was like the customers were just lined up and coming in the door. It was an uphill struggle for at least the first two or three years to get those customers. And so most of the customers that we had in the first few years were from previous connections or bosses that we'd had that had moved into new roles in new companies and then they gave us a chance because they already knew the work and the standard of it and all the rest of it. And so they were quite happy to engage us to do jobs for them. So we did lots of jobs that way at the beginning. And then we were able to say, hey, we've worked at this organisation, that organisation and all the rest of it, which then gave new clients more trust in us, I guess. So, yeah, it was hard. 
Mm. And did you proactively reach to potential clients saying, hey, we've done all that, we can help you with that? Or then from this portfolio, people started to kind of hear from you, you know, through others, word of mouth, and came how, or both? So it more now it's word of mouth, and it has been word of mouth for quite a long time. Like it was funny when we started, I can remember saying, oh, I'm Natalie Chapman from Gem Maker, and they were Gem what? Are you like a jewellery shop or do you do like gemstone stuff? So now if I say, hi, I'm Natalie from Gem Maker, it's like, oh, I follow you on social and we really want to work for you. You know, I've, you know, been following you for so long and it was like, oh, okay. Oh, good. Okay. That means the message is getting out there. Mm. So I do know that our social media presence is good, but our relationship building and our customers coming back to us for other products and services is quite high. So, but, you know, there is always an element of marketing and business development, getting yourself out there. It doesn't just always just walk in and, you know, Mm. I'm so great or anything like that. Where do you think this threshold happens that people started to actually know you and you could say, I'm Natalie from Jane Maker and they knew you? About five years, halfway? Yeah, maybe, maybe about five years because I can remember for the first couple of years, that we get to the end of financial year and be looking at the numbers and like, can I pay myself this month or, you know, do I need to pay the massive tax bill first and then maybe I can pay myself the next month. So, you know, in the first couple of years, it was more sort of much more careful on the money. Over that period of time, we've managed to make sure that we have enough work going on. So when, how long did it take for the business to be sustainable or profitable as in being able to pay your salary and sustainable and then profitable above that? I've always paid myself a salary since day one. Uh, In the initial stages, the focus was being on a sustainable business, not trying to earn too high a salary. So you know what I mean? You wanted long-term versus, hey, let's, let's make a fortune out of it. And the money, like we're a profit for purpose organization. So we are not here so that we can, you know, jack up our salaries and, you know, have a yacht and all the rest of it. What we're trying to do is A, run a sustainable business, B, put a lot of professional development into our staff and and help not just our staff, but also the ecosystem. So we put an awful lot of money back into the commercialization ecosystem that we're in and supporting women in STEM and supporting education and lots of other things with the money that we have. So I could not do that and have a lot more as a salary, but I choose to do that because that's what gives me joy and that makes me feel that I'm doing something that's worthwhile and being here. Mm, Adding purpose. Beautiful. But I love that you say that you were able to pay a salary from day one because, you know, one of the daunting steps for someone contemplating to start their own business from, let's say, having a corporate job who gives you money, you know, on a monthly basis is this fear of not having financial safety and perhaps not being able to make a salary for, I don't know, six months, a year, two years, whatever it takes, right? So your business is an example of having thought the vision and having first customer early enough that you were able to be sustainable from day one. Even with staff, I understand then. So that's great. Now, can you tell me a little bit more about your co-founder, Athena Prib? Who was Athena to you and how did you decide to team up with Athena? 
Sure. So Athena worked for me at Ansto for a period of time. She was a radiation safety officer and had that type of background. She came and did commercialisation and worked with me in my area. I think I poached her really from the radiation safety team. (laughs) And eventually she took up a good opportunity at New South Wales Uni and she progressed really well there. And when it came to founding the business, I guess I involved her in it quite a fair bit. She was also keen and interested to jump out and do something different. And so we, I guess, worked on it together of the plan of what we were going to do and how we were going to make the money and all the rest of it. And we jumped together and, you know, went for it. Right. So she was part of the vision from the beginning. Yep. And so Given that you had the MBA, you know how to do a business plan. So you actually did the proper formal business plan on the creation? No. 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 So how did that happen? Do you have to? Do you have no matter? No, you don't actually. But you do actually have to at least have it in your head what you're doing. So when I started the business, I went to a business advisor at something called Business Enterprise Connect. And it's like government-run advice and mentoring to help new businesses. And there was a really awesome lady there who was doing the mentoring and running the programs. And I sat down with her to have like an advice session of, you know, I've just started a business and here I am and what I'm doing. And I spent an hour with her and I told her about the business and what I'd done so far and what I was doing and where I was planning on going. And I said, I don't have a business plan written down anywhere am I going to fail? Because I thought I, I don't actually have it documented. I haven't had time to actually document it, right? I'm too busy putting all of this stuff together and to sit there and write it all out. And she said, oh no, you know what you're doing. She said, use, uh, you know, exactly what you can offer the market. You know what the problems are in the market that you're solving. You know who the customers are in the market. You know what the competitors are offering. You know what you're attempting to do and how you're going to go about and do it and connect with them and all the rest of it. So you You've actually just told me in the last hour the equivalent of what would go into a business plan without taking 50 pages and three or four months to do it. Mm-hmm. So so that, that gave me a lot of relief because I was all literally freaked out that if I didn't have the business plan written on paper, I would fail. It's not to say that, you know, you shouldn't. It's just you need to have thought it out. So I did not just jump out of my role because I've been doing it for too long and let's go start a business. I thought about it in advance a lot and planned and had a contract before I left, not, you know, who? Mm, yeah, yeah, well, what I'm hearing there is like the business place doesn't have to be complicated. You just need to know what is your value proposition, who you're serving, and a few stream that you're going to do that. But it doesn't have to be 50 pages as we get taught in MBAs and corporate things. No, in fact, the longer they are, the less likely they are to be used. Mm-hmm. And so when we do business strategy with people, we do business strategy on a page. On one page, yeah. And we use that to keep us focused on everything we should be doing. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And say, how did you evolve the offering from day one to, you know, 12 years in? Does it change much? Yeah, the offering has changed over the time. And I guess we monitor internationally and nationally what's going on in the marketplace. And, well, there's been a couple of most obvious parts. When government changed the way they fund universities, 
then industry engagement suddenly became important where before it was concentrated on your research papers, your research publication history, and that's where you get your funding. And then the government did a review, they accepted the recommendations from the review, and they then said, right, you have to engage with industry to get some of this funding. And so it's been an interesting journey watching some of the unis get that really quickly and move, and others go into denial and don't move for a while, but are now moving. And so industry engagement training was a big thing that we started years ago when the universities that had recognised the writing on the wall were all for it and doing it. And so that was a new offering that we didn't have. And even the language of that wasn't something that we had when we started. And as we move further, it's now more industry engagement, et cetera. But when you had the pandemic, right, then all of a sudden it was okay to do business with us if it was distance. Before, if I wanted to work with the university, I had to fly from wherever, interstate, to the university, go and meet everyone, had to do it face-to-face. You just couldn't get business by doing it via video call or a phone call. Everyone, you had to be there in person, right? And so the pandemic really changed all of that. And so business models changed. It was just a really interesting time. So things have changed over the time. What we offer, how we offer it has changed. And so what we do is we constantly monitor the market and work out what's changing and how we need to change. That's Mm. an everyday type of thing. So what's the major change you've done to the service that you provide? Well, what other than the industry engagement to start with? Mm. Doing, well, I guess doing online training, doing online meetings, providing online workshops, things that, oh, yeah. that, that they weren't things that you did before. It was all in person. And then all mm. of a sudden, nobody wanted you in person. Well, it's just such a time saver. Mm. I couldn't fit everything in my schedule if it wasn't for all the remote opportunities. But I do mm. hear you that not everybody moves at the same speed. And, and I know that some universities still aren't moving I'm not liking the remote things and still prefer the in-person things anyways, but we'll get through that. Someone was telling me two weeks ago, oh, it's not because we had the pandemic that the entire world and way of working has changed. And I was like, "Mm, kind of hard, really, really, you can't go back. And why would you really? It's the technology has been enabled. It's just accelerated. You're right. It accelerated. So stuff that could have taken another five or 10 years to happen happened within a month or two, you know, things that you could not get through before. So Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So in 2017, Jamaica won the Telstra New South Wales Business Award for Micro Business and three Stevie Awards for Innovation in Asia Pacific. How did you go about nominating Jamaica or did someone else do for these awards and how did it impact Jamaica? So the international awards we nominated for, it was a nominating process. You can apply, put your application in. You needed to have third-party validation of the things that you'd achieved. With the Telstra one, I can't remember if we nominated or someone nominated us at the time, but we also had to have external referees that were part of the nominating process. And the Telstra Awards is a really robust process. And so if you get through that, you really know that your business is pretty darn good. And it it gives you a health check for the business too. Mm -hmm. So 
you need to be a certain size and have all of these processes and things in place to get through the various stages. And so for us, it was a great growth and learning exercise because as we were answering the question, you know, do you have this in place or that in place? And it's like, okay, no, we don't have one of those in place. Let's hurry up and get it in place so we can tick yes. And so so it it forced us to, you know, A, recognise things that we didn't have in place and B, put them in place really quickly. Right. So the impact was also in you changing a few things in the business. Interesting. Yes. yes. And then how did it impact in terms of business? Did you see a significant effect on, on how people would reach out to you? Yes. So once we'd won the award and we put that out everywhere, there were a number of quotations that we had out with different organizations. And we found after we put that out, they all came back signed. Yes, absolutely. Like there was no more negotiations back and forth and it was it was just signed off and it was fantastic so that was great it really did take us up a notch in terms of external validation of us as a business wow and did you expect to win the award well you're always hopeful but I think it's funny because they video you when you win it and I was speechless like when they zoomed in on me, I was just like, <gasps> and, and so, you know, that was quite funny in itself. But yeah, it was quite flooring. It was fantastic. My parents were there. We'd got the whole team. We'd like grabbed a couple of tables and we'd invested in having the team there just to say thank you for the fact that we were at least finalists at this awards. So yeah, it was a pretty phenomenal experience and yeah, one that I won't forget in a hurry. Oh no, that's really good. We haven't talked about how you found the name. So can you tell me about finding Gem Maker name? Yes. I guess it was a, a couple of long sessions of trying to think of names. And I, I was doing this with my co-founder. We spent a long, long time writing this down that time. And I remember I, I came up with Gem Maker at one point and it had two M's in it because it was Gem Maker. And then I looked it up on the web and, of course, that was gone and probably to a gemologist or something. <laughs> and so I thought, you know, I still like the word. So I took the extra M out and I thought it looked quite nice and it was unique. You could find all the social media handles for it and all the rest of it. And so, you know, Gem Maker for me is that researchers and inventors have like a brilliant idea and it's rough when you start with it. It's really rough. But what we're doing is we're helping translating, we're helping polish it, facet it, you know, protect it, make it look better, make people understand it. And so this rough idea increases in value due to us working as gem maker. Right. Beautiful. I love it. Great narrative. (laughs) And so let's go back to just a little bit of hiring. Many people tell me that the hiring process is really hard. What's your take on it? How was it for you? Oh, it is. Hiring is hard. Hiring is probably the hardest thing that I do in my job because you've got a team, you want things to work, and you need to recruit the right team members with the right values that are going in the same direction. And the first lot of team members that I had were all people that I had worked with before. 
And so I already knew how they worked and the fact that their values aligned with mine and that their work ethics aligned with mine and all the rest of it. And so going from that to new people that you you really don't know at all is more difficult. And then if you have any issues with any of them, then trying to manage that. So, and at the moment, there's difficulty finding talent. And so that puts an extra level of complexity on it that when you're really busy and you want the talent, taking this time and and really finding the right people is hard. Mm. Why do you think we have a shortage of talent? I think it's got something to do with we're not actually importing talent and lots of people left during the pandemic. I thought that was the, the rationale for it. But, you know, at the moment there's been an awful lot more money going into translation, commercialization, and all the rest of it. So I think there's lots more people need to be trained in the space, I think. Mm. And and also people are moving. It's like 30% movement in the tech transfer space compared to the normal 10 or 20. Oh, you mean moving from one company to the other to do the same kind of role? Yep. Mm. Yeah, right. So we've talked a little bit about the finance and you say you were sustainable from day one. Did you have to raise funds at any point or that wasn't necessary at all? No. No, so I have a mortgage and so if I needed funds, I knew I could just draw back from it. So when I started the company, you just couldn't borrow, right? Mm. I find it really hilarious now because as a successful businesswoman with a business is fairly big and has been operating for like 11 years, that uh, when I go to try and get a loan from the bank, you know, it's like, oh, right, so you run your own business. And it's like, well, it's just the same as me being employed for the last 11 years by a company that's successful where I've been getting my salary. Like, what's the difference there? So, yeah, it was difficult to be able to access financing when I started. And so I just thought, well, I've got my mortgage. I've paid lots extra off my mortgage. So if I really need money, then I can just take it back. And frankly, it was at a much better interest rate than what you'd ever get, you know, doing one of the you know, getting additional financing out of the bank or something. Mm, I've never even thought about that. That's actually a, a good idea for everyone out there. If you've mm-hmm. got a mortgage, you can withdraw from it to do your own business. Yeah, pretty much. Cheapest finance. Yep. <laughs> All right. So then let's go a little bit to your own journey as a founder and how it built your character. What was the hardest bit? in those last 11 years? I think the first two years of the business were the hardest. And that was trying to, you know, convincing people that just because I worked from my garage and I didn't have a big sandstone building in the city that I was wasting all of their possible consulting money on, you know, just the perception that maybe you weren't as professional. Because I can remember when I had my first business card and I gave it to someone and they said, oh, you know, you don't have an address on it. And I went, well, I'm not going to stick my home address on the card. And it doesn't really matter because everything I do is via the web and the email anyways, or phone. So why put an address on there? So I can remember that, yeah, that sort of looking down at you and, oh, you're working from home. Oh, you're a consultant. And so all of those sort of things are kind of really on the negative side. Mm. And, you know, am I going to be in business after a year or two? And the first two years, like I said, it was very up and down roller coaster of, you know, we were working really long hours trying to 
find business, do business, market business, set up business properly, set up templates, do everything with not very much, use our creativity as much as possible. And so it was really, really tough. And I'm not going to say I don't work lots of hours now, but I've got comfortable level of money that sits in the bank that we're not sitting there going, oh, you know, should I borrow back from this? Or I guess I can always put it from my home loan on there if I need it type of thing. I'm not in that sort of situation anymore. And so I don't stress anywhere near like I used to on the things that I used to. So yeah, it's not a roller coaster, but we still have good days and we still have what I would call not so good days. (laughs) Although I'm sure I define them at the time in much stronger language. And in terms of skill set, what's the biggest stretch that you had to do or something you had to bridge and learn more? Finance. Finance. Finance and accounting. I really, really don't like it. I'm so glad I've got a really good accountant and I've got an ops manager that looks after all of that stuff and a really good bookkeeper because I can go out and I can get business. That is not a problem. But I really hate playing with the numbers, looking at the numbers, doing stuff with the numbers. I am very smart in that I know what I know and I know what I don't know. And I'm quite happy to pull in the expertise to the things that I don't know rather than try and fudge it or something. So, yeah. So did you have like finance people from the beginning? Yeah, I've always. Always. Yeah. You know, if you're starting up any business, right, you need decent foundations for whatever you're doing. So you need a decent lawyer, legal person, if you putting contracts together, term sheets, NDAs, all that sort of stuff. So a decent commercialization legal person. And I can say Catherine Boxall from Integra Law is the person that I've had for years. Mm-hmm. Darn awesome. You need a, a really good accountant to be giving you the numbers and reporting and, and helping with the budgeting really well. And the bookkeeping so that you're always up to date with the you know, GST invoices, all that sort of stuff. Mm, So so for people trying to think about their own business and launch that, so you start as a service, so you don't need the money for the tech because it's a service, Mm -hmm. but you need to start with a lawyer, an accountant, making a website. um, Marketing, marketing. Marketing. Good good marketing. And that's one of the things that we provide to startups, particularly in the deep tech space. Good marketing, not a marketing intern that you've brought in and they'll just do a bit of marketing. Marketing people who know what they're doing so it works properly from day one and you don't have to redo it. Mm. And so then what are we contemplating? What's the scale that one need to, you know, use as a saving just to start before they start having those contracts and being sustainable? Are we thinking about $5,000, $10,000, Look, it really depends on the business, what you're doing, how big you're going fast and all the rest of it. So we obviously we're trying to be as cost effective as possible and not spend too much. I think I spent 3K on my first website. So I had my 10K from my long service leave was my nesting, if you like. And I paid some guys to do the website. I mean, I wrote the content and my co-founder and I were looking at images and that side of things was looking like. And I can remember my husband saying to me, why are you paying a web agency 3K when I know how to build websites? I can do it for you. And I'm like, honey, can you design the web like that? And he goes, no. And I went, point in case, right? Yes, Mm. you know how to do a web page. Do you know how to do one that looks professional, that's designed? No, you know how to do the functional stuff. 
and that's not your core job. So you use people where their core job is doing mm. what you need, not, mm-hmm. you know, all of these quick fixes that then make you look like you are not a professional organisation because the website is usually the front door, right? If the front door looks absolutely dodgy as, are you going to go in? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear you. So between free k for the website and accountant and marketing people, I'm hearing perhaps something like 10, 15K to start? Yeah, yeah, it is because you actually have to form the company. The company can take, I don't know, a grand or two to, you know, get the constitution, get it registered, all those sort of things. You've got to get, you know, your logo, your branding material. So as you need each part, then you invest in it and you see it as an investment, not a cost. Mm, so yeah. it's a long-term investment for the first two years. You're really putting most of the money back into the business to make sure that you've got everything that you need and that you've got templates in there, that things will be faster the next time you do them. So you're creating a set of assets as you go. Mm, yeah. Okay. So yeah, about 15k to start, which sounds very reasonable to have a successful business that's going to last 11 years. So that's really good. And then When you started, were people supportive or did you have many detractors or most mostly supporting people around you? I had both, mainly supporters because you tend to stay away from your detractors where you can. So, you know, I've had the, oh, yeah, that'll never work or, you know, yeah. I, I try and stay away from it or I use it as an inspiration for actually proving them wrong. So, mm. But I had a lot of good mentors that, gave me advice all the way and it was fantastic. So without that support, there were at least four or five mentors that I had that were just absolutely fabulous in helping me along the way. And I had other friends and family and all the rest of it supporting me. I had my husband who was looking after the kids all the time while I was working all the time. It's very important to have a network of people around you to help you through it all. Mm, And the mentors, did you actually find them or they were already in your network and it happened organically? past bosses and and also the lady that I mentioned that was at the Enterprise Mm. Connect. She's been a long-term mentor that has just always been fabulous and helps me if I have self-doubt too. Mm. Did that happen a lot or? Oh, I've always got self-doubt. Yeah. Every time I take something on and I go, it's brand new. Well, that's what we're used to doing. We always do things that we've never done before. So just, you know, swallow and you'll be right. (laughs) <laughs> you almost need that on a flashcard, you know, to have on your desk. Yes. And so I'd like to ask you, reflecting on your own journey, can you think about any privilege that really helped you and perhaps at the opposite, some systemic barrier that you had to overcome? Sure. So I guess I'm lucky that I'm white. I'm in a country where I have opportunity for great education, health systems, everything is there to support me. And in fact, there's even support programs for women in STEM and all the rest of it. So I am fortunate in those sort of ways when going for employment and all those sort of things, I can see that that are, I I guess, helpful for me progressing. On the barriers, my father came off a boat. So my grandparents and my father are migrants to the country. I know what they went through to be able to do everything that they did. And 
on my dad's side, no one has actually gone to uni yet. My mum's side, she was the first one to go to uni and I lived with her as a single parent. And so when I went through school, at one point she was on the single parent pension. I was working at KFC so that we could help, you know, pay the rent and I was paying a third of my school fees. I was at various public schools. I wasn't at private schools or anything like that. And so I worked for seven years at KFC to make sure that I could get through university, pay my rent, eat, all that sort of stuff. So they were kind of barriers in that I could have been studying more if I didn't have to and all the rest of it. But the the upside is I was a manager in these organisations and I was learning resilience and learning to adapt and change and work really, really hard for everything that I've had. So, yeah, it wasn't just handed to me and aren't I lucky and, and all that sort of thing. And so I looked after myself a lot in that sort of realm. But that's underpinned everything that I do. So, you know, going out and building a business and doing it, and building it from nothing is not a problem for me and it doesn't stress me out doing it. Hmm. Being a, a woman in a primarily male-dominated areas, because, you know, I've worked in semiconductors, I've worked in radiation, nuclear, mining, all sorts of, like I said, male-dominated areas. And so I have been underestimated for a lot of my time and underutilised because of being, say, overlooked or whatever. And so that saddens me because I think I could contribute a lot more in a lot of ways, whether it's, you know, policy, strategy, getting solutions, programs and things together, where sometimes you feel that you get left out of the conversations because of a variety of reasons in that sort of realm. So, yes, there, there have been barriers, but I work hard to get over them, around them, through them, whatever. And so that's, I guess, made me better as a person. But understanding on the privilege side, we sponsor Deadly Science. And so if I'm comparing what I've got compared to what some of these kids don't have, there's a massive difference. And I can use where I am and what I've managed to do to help with fixing those inequities. And so I do see it as part of my role is to fill those gaps and use my position and my privilege to help. Mm. I think that, that that's what you should do if you have it because they're not able to help themselves in a lot of cases. And it's the same when we talk about women in STEM and wanting more women in STEM. So it's not just a, a woman thing. It's men are part of that solution in helping get more women in STEM. So, yeah. Well, yeah, we need to have an ecosystem that's sustainable for them to work in. Otherwise, there's no point in going in STEM and then leaving the sector within five years, which is the current number. So I hear you. And I really like what you say about helping the kids and solving this inequity because that has so much impact at this early stage. When you come later, yes, it's helpful. But when you come at the kids' stage, it's exponential impact that you can have. So, yeah, no, thank you for doing that. No problem. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks. <laughs> All right. So that's it. Do you want to leave me with a book that inspires you and a song that energizes you? There's a book that I really enjoy and it's The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People 
I find to be really, really useful. And what I did was I just went through the front page and wrote them down on a piece of paper. I did actually read the book, but I found that the most useful part of it was just highlighting that. And that helps keep me focused. So definitely go that. And Fireflies is a song that I play when I go jogging or walking because it takes my mind off everything and it's so wonderful and positive and, you know, it's great to dance to, really. That was Natalie Chapman, the founder of GemMaker, an award-winning research and tech commercialization agency. It seems to me that the 10-15 years mark is really a pivotal point for many entrepreneur-minded people to, on one hand, reflect on where they can have the most impact. And in a sense that align with their character and their values, but also on having built a significant brand for themselves, expertise, but very importantly, a network to leverage in their entrepreneurship journey. Natalie's example in founding GemMaker is another great example of a business that was sustainable from day one, having secured her first two clients very early on, which almost validated her value proposition in the first days. And this is really building on this network and this trust and this expertise that she had already built, not only in getting that first client, but also in staffing, putting a list of people that she knew could deliver great work and quality to launch this business. So that really enabled this first leap of faith. And for those of you intimidated by the idea of writing a 50 pages business plan, well, don't. Take Natalie's lead. Keep it simple and to the point. You don't need a 50 page business plan, but what you do need is an idea in your head of what is exactly what you want to do. Who are your customers? What is their problem? And how do you solve it? And know your space before you start. The rest can be refined as you learn in the process. So, tell me, what's a space you know well with one problem that you could solve? Hey, thanks for listening. If you like the show, share it. Tune in for monthly episodes. You can follow multiple hats, visit my website. That's angelicgreco.com.au or follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Just search for Angelic Greco. I'd love to hear from you. If you want to tell me about your story, leave me a message.